I was talking to Doug this morning, looking at his notes, and they looked like schizophrenia. And uh, he said he's a Weber, and I'm not. I need to stick to the script or I'll freestyle. So who is this guy, Doug McCary, that's going to speak this morning? Marine pilot, FBI agent, missionary, NBA chaplain, preacher, teacher, son, husband to Lori, encourager, Bible thumper, truth speaker, disciple maker, and a servant. I said NBA chaplain, I think at some point he said, you know, I need my own NBA team. So he's father to Russ, who's here with us today somewhere, although I ditched him, so I'm not sure if he's actually made it, but Russ, Ryan, Sarah, Kate, Ellie, Rachel, Abby, and Rebecca. So he's got an NBA team plus reserves. <clears throat> when I was eight years old, I read Revelation 3.16. You may not be able to quote it in King James English, but everybody here probably knows it. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. As an eight-year-old surfer punk kid, uh, I hadn't been to a seminary, and I didn't speak Greek or Hebrew, but I knew exactly what the Bible meant on that verse. Uh, Doug McCary is one of the few people on earth that every time I speak with him, he exhorts me to be on fire for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doug is going to speak the non-politically correct Bible truth that I need to hear this morning. Come on up and speak it. Good morning, guys. So good to be back here with you guys. Uh, haven't got, I haven't seen some of you in three years, so I want to give you a quick update before I get started. Three years ago, um, I was up here sharing, and uh, many of you may remember I had a daughter, or I have a daughter, who was waiting on a heart transplant. She was, uh, what, you, what I don't remember, I may have shared or not, she had a two-week life expectancy when we adopted her seven years ago, we, or five years ago. We didn't know that. We, we knew she was terminal. But the doctor said her life was a, a miracle, that they couldn't explain medically how she lived. And I was up here, and Tex Brown was here. He came up to me. I was getting ready to go to India, and he gave me this coin. In the military, you coin people, and uh, the coining is something people would do, and, and you kept this coin to know that you were not alone. And if, if you ran into somebody, you always ask them to see the coin. It was Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, or whatever. So Tex gave me this one about... Um, spiritual warrior, spiritual warfare. And it's Ephesians, from Ephesians 6. And it's got it inscribed on the back and on the front it's got a picture of a warrior with a shield of faith, you know, the breastplate of righteousness, all those things annotated. And he said, I want you to keep this and I want you to know you're not alone. You have a battle buddy. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your daughter. And that was really comforting to me just to, when I was in India, I'd put my hand on that and I'd feel it in my pocket and I'd know somebody's praying for me. And, and, and so I was hoping he would be here because my daughter got a heart transplant a year and a half ago. And she just had a checkup a couple of weeks ago. And, and she, has, she couldn't be better, the doctor said. She's 12 years old with a brand new heart and a new lease on life. And God did in her what he wants to do in each one of us with our spiritual hearts. He, I, I told Rachel, I said, Rachel, God gave you a picture for everybody to see of what he wants to do in their own hearts spiritually. And um, on the way up here last year, this was another thing, or three years ago, on the flight up, God convicted me ado about adopting our eighth child, Rebecca. Rebecca is an orphan. Uh, she has Down syndrome. And unfortunately, she comes a from a country that nobody values people if they have illness or, or deformities, and they don't value women. 
And, and so she was on the list for a long time. Nobody wanted to adopt this precious little girl. And I didn't want to adopt her because I already had seven kids. And I was just like, you know, and, but I was praying about it. On the flight up, God really moved in my heart to adopt her. And uh, we adopted her three years ago. And it's been an incredible journey uh, of watching what God has done with her. We have another child with Down syndrome named Abigail who has autism and Down syndrome. So I have two daughters with Down syndrome, five adopted daughters from China, three adult kids who are married. I have three grandchildren. And I'm convinced God did all that in my life to soften my heart to be able to receive his truth and to have a living illustration that takes away any excuse from any guy to say, I don't have time to read the Bible or to spend time in prayer. Because God still moves me to get up in the morning and spend time in his word every day and to spend time praying to him every day, even though I have all these other responsibilities. So if you think your life is busy, let me send my five daughters over to your house for about a week, and you'll see how freed up you really are. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it is, it is tough. It is really tough. I was sharing with Mike. I had to call my wife and repent on the way up here because I was at the end of my rope a couple of days ago just from the the pulling of everything. There's a lot of stuff, and we all have things that pull on us. And as men, oh, you know what God calls us to do? He calls us, like Paul said to Corinthians, to act like men. And unfortunately, the men in our country have been neutered in the church. We have been neutered in our culture, and as men, we, we, we're, we're pseudo-men. We don't really act like biblical men because we've allowed the culture to so influence us that we've become okay with sin. And let me give you an example. Jermaine Simmons, pastor of a fairly large church in Tallahassee. I don't know if you heard about him, but just over a couple of weeks ago, actually it's about a month ago now, he was caught having an affair with a woman in the church by the husband. He, was this, he just wrote a book about what it means to be a godly man. And, and this was all over newspapers across the country. You know why? Because when the man came home, the man got the call uh, from the school because the school tried to reach the wife. They couldn't reach the wife. And when they couldn't reach the wife, they called the husband. Husband goes, picks up the son, takes him home, finds the pastor in bed with his wife. And so he goes, I'm going to kill you. Goes and grabs his gun. I'm going to kill you both. So the pastor, doing the wise thing, bolted out of the back door. But he was, didn't have a stitch of clothes on. And so he's hiding out by a fence, stark naked. And this guy has a gun. His wife's begging him not to shoot the guy. The police show up. And this guy takes off from the house with the pastor's clothes, his car keys, and his cell phone. And, and that made stories all over the world, actually. It was over in London on their, in their newspaper. This guy stands up one week after that happened and said, You know what? What I did was wrong. And I'm sorry, but I am not stepping down from being a minister in this church. And I'm going to ask you to forgive me because I'm no holier now than I was a week ago, which is true. But what he did was so offensive to our God. And there are standards that our God has set for his people. And we have confused consequences with grace. And, and God says, when you choose as my children to do things that go against my word, there will be consequences. And those consequences are, are, 
for an example for others, and I chastise you, I discipline you because I love you. And, and, and it's not a bad thing, guys, to have discipline. Look at Nick Saban. Do you think Nick Saban goes up to somebody, Charlie, when they're not doing their job, and he goes, you know what, Charlie, it's okay. You know, you didn't block well, but that's okay. You're going to be all right. No, what does he do? He gets in the guy's face, and we have stopped being men, telling other men what it means to be men. And that's exactly what Paul did to Timothy. Paul was with Timothy for almost 20 years building into him. And you know what? He sends Timothy to Ephesus because they had all kinds of issues in Ephesus going on. And here's the problem. This was 30 years, 40 years after Christ was crucified. So this is very young in the church. And the church is already having false teachers from within. They're already having these kind of issues with sexual immorality, with money-hungry leaders. All these issues are infiltrating the church because that's how Satan works. And Timothy was a little timid. And he was, it looks like from what Paul was addressing, he was almost even being tempted. And Paul didn't want that because it was so important for his man, God's man, to be saying what God would say. And I just want to ask you to think about this as we go into this uh, passage today in 1 Timothy 6, 11. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your legacy. What will you be remembered for? What will you be remembered for? 2011, Steve Jobs died. The greatest innovator, probably one of the greatest innovators in history. At the time of his death, he was worth over $10 billion. By 23, he was worth a million dollars. He died from pancreatic cancer. When he died, he was on the Apple board and the Disney board. He's been known as one of the greatest CEOs and innovators in history. But you know what he says? He says, in others' eyes, my life is an epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, wealth is only a fact of life that I'm accustomed to. At this moment, lying on the sick bed and recalling my whole life, I realized that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and that it become meaningless in the face of death. God gave us the senses to let us feel the love in everyone's heart, not the illusion that's brought about by wealth. The wealth that I have in my life, I can't bring with me. He said, you can hire someone for anything except to die for you. He died a miserable man. The guy who gave us the iPhone, the iPad, the MacBook, who's really transformed our world with smartphones. And yet he died a miserable man. And you know, when you look at those technological advances, what have they really done to our culture and our families? You think they've enhanced it or destroyed it? When I look around and I go to a restaurant and I see five people at a table in one family all on their smart devices, nobody talking, that doesn't bode very well with me because I look at it and I see how are, how are they even interacting and connecting with each other? How do they know what's going on in each other's life? You walk through airports, nobody talks anymore. You can't even begin a conversation because everybody's got their earphones in. Nobody wants to talk. And we've become isolated as a culture. And as the church, we've fallen trapped to it too. 
And what God says is he tells us to act like men in his word. And Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, man of God. This is the term he uses. Now, if you, if you know anything about that term, it's only used three times in the New Testament. One in a generic way. To Timothy is the only guy referred to as the man of God in the New Testament when Paul addresses him that way in 1 Timothy 6. In the Old Testament, it was used over 70 times. Moses was referred to as man of God. Elijah was referred to as man of God. Many prophets were referred to as man of God. David was referred to as man of God. And what the word really meant is someone who communicated God's word for him to people. And do you know each one of us, if you profess to be a believer, you have a responsibility to communicate God's word to people. You may not feel like you do, but the Bible is explicitly clear that we are ambassadors as though God was interceding through us to reconcile people to himself. Now, you may be here today, and you may not really believe what the Bible says. You may not even be in a relationship with God. God may be something you've thought about, you've toyed around, but really, and I want to apologize to you, and at the end, I'm going to tell you what God really wants from you. But this message is really for people that call themselves men of God, people that want to be that man. That's who this message is for today. Because that was Timothy, Timothy was with Paul for 20 years, and Paul recognizes that Ephesus is in trouble. So he sends his man in there, and he tells him, first thing he says in verse 11, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And we go, what things? You have to go back a few verses. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith, and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. People have plunged into ruin and destruction seeking money, seeking power, seeking wealth, whatever it is. He's referring to those things, and he says, you, Timothy, flee these things. So the first thing that a man of God does is he runs away from the things of the world. God calls us as his men to run away from the things of the world, which he lays out as a love of money. You know, we would include sexual immorality, too. That's the way of the world, isn't it? Kelly, you said last night, I think you, you, you quoted a statistic, like some, I don't remember that particular statistic about the men in, or young men in pornography, but I know Barna did a survey in 14, eight out of every 10 men between 18 and 30 look at pornography. These are Christian men, by the way. Eight out of 10 look at pornography once a month. 40% of those, four out of 10, look at it every day. Christian men, men who say they want to be men of God. They're not fleeing. The word flee there is the same word that means fugitive. We get the word fugitive. And do you know when I was an FBI agent and I used to go after fugitives, do you think they wanted to get caught? No. What did they do? They ran. Every, they were always alert. And our problem is when the world comes around us and Satan uses the world temptations to come at us, we don't run. We've become comfortable with it. We flirt with it. We allow it to get close to us. A fugitive doesn't do that. A fugitive, if he, sent, if he even thinks that there's a law guy coming after him, he's, he's gone. He's always alert, and we should be alert. We run away from the things of the world. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells him, Timothy, flee these youthful lusts. Over in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the Corinthians, Flee sexual immorality. Why does he say flee? Because your bodies are the temple of God. God bought you and he owns you. And the problem is for us, we think we own our own bodies. 
And, and we get into this cycle of, of, especially with pornography and sexual immorality, but it can be greed or anything else. We get into this cycle where we, we're sorry and we feel guilt, but we really don't flee from it. We don't run from it. And I realize this is not a popular message because we all struggle with this. Every one of us as men, we live in a culture that inundates us. All you got to do, listen, go turn on the TV and how many Viagra Silas commercials do you see when you watch a football game or you watch a baseball game or any sports event? You know, that's embarrassing when you're sitting with your mom of 81 years old and they're talking about having an erection for four hours. That's embarrassing. But that's where we've come as a culture, that we talk about sex all the time. And guys, listen, I know if you don't have water in seven days, you'll die. If you don't have food in 30, you'll die. But do you know that you can go a lifetime without sex and not die? Now, I know you find that hard to believe, but it's true. There are people that do that. I have a friend named Mike Perkins who was in the FBI with me, and he's given me permission to share this story. Five years ago, his wife was diagnosed with dementia, and basically she's been working backward in her emotional state for five years to now she's like an infant. He has to do everything for her, and really he has had no sexual relations with her in five years. And he's a man of God. And he's loved her. He don't complain about it. He does it with joy because he is a man who knows what God has done for him. And he's grateful. And he doesn't see it as a burden. And so often we think fleeing is a burden. Do you realize that the enemy wants to bring these things into our life to destroy our witness? He can't take our salvation, so he tries to destroy our witness to the world. And so people end up looking like people like this pastor, and they go, this guy doesn't really believe what he says. He doesn't live like that. If, if that's really true, if he really believed what he said, he wouldn't do what he did. It doesn't mean perfection, guys. It means accountability. None of us are perfect, but we should want accountability. We should want people to speak into our life. You know, when I, when I was a pilot, and I, I was a single-seat pilot, and I had another guy in another plane about a mile away, always looking behind me to check to make sure there was nothing in my blind spot. We all have blind spots. That's why we need battle buddies. That's why we need people in our life that will speak truth and love to us, to help us learn to flee from these things, to flee from these things that will destroy our witness to the world. 1 John 2 says this, says, you cannot love God and love the world with the same kind of love. And he uses the word agape there, and it's the unconditional love. In other words, if you love God unconditionally, then your love for the world has to be conditional. It has to be. Because you're loving God unconditionally. You can't ha love the world unconditionally. And by that, I mean, he tells us what the world is. It's the love of the flesh, the love of the, what? The, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That is the world system. And he's saying you cannot love God with the same kind of love that you love the world. God has to be our highest love. And if he is, we're going to flee the things, we're going to run away from the things of the world. That's what he says. That's the first thing. Then he says that the second part of that verse, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So the man of God runs away from the things of the world, but then he what? Runs to the things of God. 
So you don't just run away from it, you're running to something. That's really what repentance is. You're turning from going this way, allowing these things in your life, to going over here, seeking these things. And we don't have the strength to do it on our own. He has to give us that strength, but he wants us to ask him for it. Help us, Lord. And then as he, he brings things into our life where we do fail, you start to come back to the cross and you say, thank you for the cross. And the more you understand what he did on that cross, the more you don't want to go that way of the world. You want to go to righteousness and you want to pursue godliness and faith. And what is righteousness? You know what righteousness is? That's right behavior. That's addressing behavior, guys. That means that we have standards and we don't lower and dilute our standards because they're impossible. Hebrews says, strive for the holiness that you need in order to see God. That's what it says in Hebrews. Strive, that means to work. We work in every area of our life. Why do we not work in the area of spirituality? You know, you guys who, who have these companies that are so amazing, you put in a lot of time and a lot of effort. Why don't you take some of that and put into your spiritual life and strive, asking God to give you the strength and understanding, but you do it with an effort. Make effort. There are so many passages in the New Testament that talk about striving and effort that we just blow over because of grace. Yes, God gives us grace. I'm a recipient of grace. But we are called to strive. You know what? Paul says, live a life worthy of your calling. That means a, a direction you want to go in. He's telling us that we should strive for these things. And one is righteousness. The second, godliness. Godliness is the internal devotion to God that we should want. We should pursue that. And how do we do that? We do it by being in his word. You know, I, I, I talk to guys all the time. I just can't read the Bible. I can't understand it. Well, how much time have you tried? I tried to read it, man, and I read that stuff, and I just don't understand it. I said, let me ask you a question. When you were three, could you understand textbooks of, about algebra? No. That's ridiculous. Well, you had to grow into it, right? First, you had to learn your ABCs. The problem is, because we're adults as men and we have minds that can read and understand English, we think we can just pop into the Bible and have spiritual understanding about things that really we need to be 20 or 30 years down the road spiritually. The Bible is a spiritual book. It's not just a book of English words. It is a spiritual book, and you need spiritual discernment. That's why Paul tells one group of people, listen, you can't handle the meat. You need milk. You're like a baby. And so what do you do? That doesn't mean you don't read. You start reading. Read Matthew. Read Mark. Read Luke. Read John. Read the Gospels and ask Jesus, help me understand who you are. Help me understand who I am. Help me understand how to respond to who you are in light of who I am. That's what he wants. He wants a relationship with us. And he wants us to be godly men. Men who are his men who have a devotion to him. That's what godliness is. He wants us to have faith. That means a trust. That means when you can't see where he's leading you, you trust. That's, that's why you adopt a little girl that is terminal. Who does that? Who goes to adopt a girl who's going to die unless God is moving you to do that because he wants to teach you something in the process? And he taught me through my little daughter who was dying how to live every day like I'm going to die. And that's the problem. See, if Steve Jobs knew at the beginning of his life what he knew at the end of his life, I think he'd have been a different man. The problem is he realized it too late. He realized it too late. He also says, run to love. 
run to love. Love for God, love for people. You know what? We live in a time right now, guys, where there is so much hatred in our country. And as God's men, we are to be people that show love to even people we disagree with ideology-wise. And I, I look, I, you know, I love what Jesus does. He takes Simon the Zealot, who would have killed Matthew or Levi any other time, and he takes Levi, and he says, I'm going to bring you two guys together, and I'm going to make sure you understand that my kingdom ideology has to be over your political ideology. And you're going to love each other, because he tells them that. That's how you're going to be known for your love for one another. How are we doing in that? by the way, as Christians. I look on uh, some of these social media sites and I see men that profess to be Christians writing some of the most vile stuff about people just because they have a different viewpoint. We've gotten to where we can't even have discussions about different things anymore as a country and the church has to be different. We as men, when we act like men, we can love people even though we disagree with them. And God calls us to do that, to love. We run to the things of God because God is love. And why do we love? Because he showed us love. He showed us love. We didn't deserve it. I love what Maisel said a few years ago. We don't deserve the air we breathe. But in this selfiness culture, Craig, wherever you are, uh, we believe that our, our opinions are important and we're the most important thing. But we've got to show love. And then steadfastness. He says, run to steadfastness. You know what that means? That's perseverance. And he goes on in 2 Timothy to give him three illustrations, an athlete, a farmer, and a military soldier. And he talks about these are people that persevere. And so often we get beat up by the enemy or we fall and we fail, and then we just take ourselves out of the battle. And, and, and we don't want to be around anybody because we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Again, I go back to Nick Saban. What do you think, Charlie, he would do if somebody's on the sideline feeling sorry for themselves. He, he's going to go over and say an encouraging word, but he's going to kick them in the rear end and tell them to get back in the battle. And the problem is, we, could you imagine a guy over in Afghanistan doing that? It's going to endanger the whole unit. You, we are in a battle. We are in a war every day, and we don't think that. Our, our way of thinking when we walk out of this door is, well, I'm in a war sometimes, but it's a 24-7 thing. The enemy's always looking for your weak points. He's always looking to take you down, to destroy your witness. And sometimes it doesn't surface for 15 to 20 years. He'll get you with a little area and you think it's not bad, it's not hurting anybody. You know, it doesn't hurt to look at that picture. I mean, come on, she's wearing a swimsuit and you just allow your mind to go places. That happened to a guy who was a guest on my radio program a, a week ago. He talked about how God, you know, how God allowed him to go there, but he made the choice. And he started looking at pictures that led to other things. 20 years as he's in ministry with Fellowship of Christian Athletes now, he ends up committing something that was so heinous that he had to step outside of ministry. And his wife, the gracious lady that she was, ended up working it out with him after years of counseling. And now you know what God's done? He's taken that guy's failure and used it as a way for him to minister to people who struggle with pornography. And over the last 20 years, you know what's happened? He's ministered over 1,400 men and helped them gain victory in that area. Because now he's running from this to this. He's running to Jesus. He's steadfast. He didn't give up. And finally, he says gentleness. 
He says gentleness. That's meekness, humility. I love what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He starts off the Beatitudes with that one. You know why? Because humility is the beginning point for all of it. If you want to be God's man, you're a humble man. You're a humble man. And it's hard to be humble in this selfiness culture, isn't it, Craig? It's hard. But God calls us as his men to be poor in spirit. Why? Because we have nothing to offer. Anything good you hear coming out of my mouth today is not from Doug McCary. It's from the spirit that has taken root in my heart that has been just pounded and beat, beat in over years of learning very hard lessons to show this truth in Scripture being lived out and fleshed out in a daily life. A dying to myself. That's really what the Christian life is about. It's not what you hear in some places. It is a dying to self. Jesus said, listen, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. Guys, do you fight every day like it matters? You see, you run away from the things of the world. You run to God, but you fight every day like it matters. Jesus said in Matthew 5, when he's talking about specifically the issue of lust, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. This is serious business. This is not light stuff. You fight. You fight. You fight every day. Why? I'll go on back again to 1 Corinthians 6. Because you're not your own. He bought you. He owns you. And he wants to use you to bring people into the kingdom. What do you fight against? You fight against Satan. You fight against the world. You fight against selfishness. You fight against sin, false teachers. Paul says, I buffet my body so that I will not be disqualified. In other words, his witness will not be disqualified. He can tell people the truth about Jesus so that people can be reconciled to God and they won't end their life like Steve Jobs, miserable without joy. That's what he wants. Because our citizenship isn't here, guys. This is temporary. Finally, he says in the last few verses, 13 through 16, he says, I charge you. That's like a military term. I commission you, Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He just throws Pontius Pilate in there. Why? Reminding Timothy of Jesus. Our, our, Jesus is our model, who when he was reviled, he said, Father, forgive them. He, he reminds Timothy that to be faithful no matter what. Jesus was faithful all the way to the cross. And for you guys who don't know him very well yet, that's what he wants more than anything else. He says, he, he created you and I for a, a, a dependent relationship. And because of our sin, our selfishness, our chasing after the world, that relationship was broken. But in his mercy, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross he was a perfect man. He was born to a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He said, I'm going to die on a cross, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. And when I do, if you will place faith and trust in me and repent of chasing the world and trusting in your own righteousness and place all your faith in me, Jesus Christ, then I will inhabit you. I will send my spirit inside of you. I will transform you for the inside out. You will no longer have a desire to chase the world. You'll have a desire to chase my father. You will fight every day like it matters, and you will be faithful no matter what. Because even when you are faithless, I will be faithful, he says. That's what he says. That's what he wants. Be faithful no matter what. So I started this story 
this message with Steve Jobs, I want to end with a guy named George Mueller. George Mueller was a wealthy man who lived in London. But George Mueller was called into ministry in his mid-20s, and he sold everything. His net worth was .0000019% of Steve Jobs' net worth. Did you get that? .0000019% when he died. But he died a man full of joy. You know why? By the end of his life, he was caring for over 2,000 orphans. He bought land, built buildings, fed and cared for the orphans and the workers without public request for money or special offerings, not even private letters sent out, only prayer. And this is what he said, and it's so incredible. He said, there was a day when I died, I utterly died. I died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his taste and will, and died to the world, its approval or condemnation. Died to the approval or blame of even my brothers and friends. And since I, since then, I have studied only to show myself approved to God. The last part of what Paul tells Timothy is, he says, hold on to the good confession to keep the commandments unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. He's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, and you have a choice. You can bow now to him or you can bow on the other side, but one day you will bow, and he wants his men to be people who bow now and are unashamed in their testimony before the Lord and before the world. And so, guys, I'm calling you to, when you walk out today to do what Craig said yesterday, don't make it someday. Make it today. Flee the things of the world. Run to the things of God. Fight every day like it matters. And be faithful no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. As the God of the universe, the creator the one true and holy God, there's none like you. Father, we repent as men for our lax view towards sin and our lax view, Lord, towards your standards. Be merciful to us, Lord. I pray that today there are men here, I know, Lord, that may be struggling in their relationship with you. They may be struggling with a particular sin. Lord, today, let that change. Let them call upon the mighty power of Jesus, Father. Let them call upon the blood that we sang about, Lord, the blood that can can heal us, the blood that can cleanse us, that can change us. Thank you for what you did on that cross. Thank you for dying for us, Lord. And if there's somebody here that has never bowed their hearts to you, they've never trusted you, I pray that right now, today, Lord, they would do that. In their own hearts, where they are, in their own words, silently, they would say to you, Lord, I want to be your man. I want to follow you. I want to run away from the things of the world. In their own words, I want to trust you. For those, Lord, that have been your men, that have been distracted, me included, 
Lord, we're sorry. And I pray that, Lord, we would take a moment now just to reflect on areas that you want to deal with in our life. We would repent and turn and turn to you. That you would strengthen us. It wouldn't be someday. It would be today. Thank you, blessed Father. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We praise you. To him be the glory. Amen.